0: Many journalists and legal experts opined that the next phase of the trial was one of uncertainty and possible subversion. The defendants themselves were about to make their closing statements to the judges who would decide their ultimate fate, a fate that included a high likelihood of execution. This was their last attempt to present themselves in an empathetic light that might well save their own skin. And after the trial had officially concluded, Chief Justice Lawrence admitted to having anxieties about that September morning. He worried that the overt dignity of the trial was going to be thrown into the wind by allowing these fascists to speak openly and with few restraints. He later wrote that, despite his initial concern about the dignity of the trial being threatened, it was actually enhanced by their statements. For this revealed not only that they were just enough to let the men have their say about their cases and the prosecution, but also fair enough to let them speak at all. No Soviet show trial would allow such a thing, and had Roosevelt survived the war, these men could well have been six feet under before the calendar turned to 1946. Welcome to Smokefield Blooms. A political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zieg. The Nuremberg Trials. Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities. Part 6. The final defendant's statements were now at hand. This was a chance for the world to hear these men, without counsel, explain their perspectives on the war, their conduct as National Socialist members, and of what weighed most heavily upon their conscience. Many in the courtroom half expected the defendants to make long-winded speeches that openly mocked the proceedings and the notion of justice itself. For it was not out of the realm of possibility to imagine Julius Stryker rebelling against the court with his violent propaganda or for Hess to spit on the proceedings and express utter disdain for the tribunal and its objectives. And Hermann Goering, like in so many other parts of this trial, was the first to speak. He largely set the tone for what was to follow that day. Quote, The prosecution in her final speeches has treated the defendants and our testimony as completely worthless. The statements made under oath by the defendants were accepted as absolutely true when they could serve to support the indictment, but conversely... The statements were characterized as absolute perjury when they refuted the indictment. The prosecution uses the fact that I was the second man of state as proof that I must have known of everything that was happening, but it does not present any documentary or other convincing proof that in cases where I have denied under oath that I knew about certain things, much less desired those things. Mr. Jackson points out to the fact that the signatory states are still in a state of war with Germany and that because of the unconditional surrender merely a state of truce exists now. International law has therefore become uniform, and the same must apply to both sides. Therefore, if everything which is being done to Germany today on the part of the occupying powers is considered admissible under international law, then Germany was formerly in the same position. Mr. Jackson stated further still that one cannot accuse and punish a state, but rather one must hold the leaders responsible Everyone seems to forget that Germany was a sovereign state and that her legislation within the German nation was not subject to the jurisdiction of foreign countries. No state ever gave notice to the Reich at any time that any activity for National Socialism would be subject to punishment and persecution. I did not want a war, nor did I bring it about. I did everything to prevent it by negotiations. But after it had broken out, I did everything I could to assure total victory." Since the three greatest powers on earth, together with many other nations were fighting against us, we finally succumbed to their tremendous superiority. I stand up for the things that I have done. But I deny most emphatically that my actions were dictated by the desire to subjugate foreign peoples by war, to murder them, to rob them, to enslave them, or to commit mass atrocities. The only motive which guided me was my ardent love for my people, its happiness, its freedom, and its life and for this I call on the Almighty and my German people to witness. Next to speak was Rudolf Hess, the possibly unstable third-in-command of the Third Reich. First of all, I would like to make a request to the High Tribunal that I may remain seated because of my state of health. Some of my comrades here can confirm the fact that at the very beginning of these proceedings I predicted the following. 1. That witnesses would appear who, under oath, would make utterly untrue statements while, at the same time, these witnesses could create an absolutely reliable impression and enjoy the best possible reputation. 2. That it would be reckoned with the court would receive affidavits containing untrue statements. 3. That the defendants would be astonished and surprised at some German witnesses. And 4. That some of the defendants would act rather strangely, They would make shameless utterances about the Fuhrer. They would incriminate their own people. They would partially incriminate each other, and falsely at that. Perhaps they would even incriminate themselves, and also quite wrongly. As I said before, a certain incident in England caused me to think of the reports in the earlier trials. The reason was that the people around me during my imprisonment acted towards me in a peculiar and incomprehensible way in a way which led me to conclude that these people were somehow acting in an abnormal state of mind. Some of them, these persons and people around me, were changed from time to time. Some of the new ones who came to me in place of those who had just been changed had strange eyes. They were glassy and like eyes in a dream. This symptom, however, lasted only a few days, and then they made a completely normal impression— they could no longer be distinguished from normal human beings. The essential point, however, is that in one of the reports of the time, which must still be in the press files on the proceedings, this was in Paris, about the Moscow trial, it said that the defendants had had strange eyes. They had had glazed and dreamy eyes. I ask the High Tribunal, therefore, to consider everything which I shall say from now on as under oath. Concerning my oath, I should also like to say that I am not a churchgoer. I have no spiritual relationship with the church, but I am a deeply religious person. I am convinced that my belief in God is stronger than that of most other people. I ask the High Tribunal to give all the more weight to everything which I declare under oath, expressly calling God as my wit. And at this point, the judge intervened after twenty meandering and poorly enunciated minutes. His performance was so embarrassing to the Nazis in the dock that Garen began pulling on his jacket sleeve in an attempt to have him sit down and shut up. He quickly finished his thoughts, though. Quote, If I were to begin all over again, I would act just as I have acted. Even if I knew that in the end I should meet a fiery death at the stake, no matter what human beings may do, I shall someday stand before the judgment seat of the Eternal. I shall answer to him, and I know he will judge me absolutely innocent." Unquote. Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop was next. It was his last-ditch effort to clear his name and save his neck. Quote, if I deny that this German foreign policy planned and prepared for a war of aggression, that is not an excuse on my part. The truth of this is proved by the strength that we developed in the course of the second world war and how weak we were at the beginning of it for history will believe us when i say that we would have prepared for a war of aggression immeasurably better if we had actually intended to do so what we actually intended was to look after our elementary necessities of life in the same way that england looked after her own interests in order to make one-fifth of the world's subjects to her and in the same way that the United States brought an entire continent, and Russia brought the largest inland territory of the world under their hegemony. The only difference between the policies of these countries as compared with ours is that we demanded parcels of land, such as the Danzig and the Corridor, which were taken from us against all rights, whereas the other powers are accustomed to thinking only in terms of continents. In 1939, The waging of aggressive war was obviously not yet regarded as an international crime against peace. Otherwise, I could not explain Stalin's telegram at the conclusion of the Polish campaign, which reads, and I quote, The friendship of Germany and the Soviet Union, based on the blood which they have shed together, has every prospect of being a firm and lasting one. It is here that I should like to emphasize and stress the fact that even I ardently desired this friendship at the time Of this friendship, there remains today only the primary problem for Europe and the world. Namely, will Asia dominate Europe? Or will the Western powers be able to stem or even push back the influence of the Soviets at the Elbe, at the Adriatic coast, and at the Dardanelles? In other words, practically speaking, Great Britain and the United States today face the same dilemma as Germany faced at the time when I was carrying on negotiations with Russia. For my country's sake... I hope with all my heart that they be more successful in their results. And I might just as well assert that the signatory powers of this Charter had formed a conspiracy for the suppression of the primary needs of a highly developed, capable, and courageous nation. For when I look back upon my actions and my desires, then I can only conclude this, that the only thing of which I consider myself guilty before my people, not before this tribunal, is that my aspirations in foreign policy remained without success," Unquote. The next defendant to read his final remarks was the unwavered confidence and direct approach of Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel. Quote, I acknowledged on the witness stand my responsibility in connection with my official position. And have explained the significance of this position in the presentation of evidence and in the final plea of my defense counsel. It is far from my intention to minimize my part in what took place. I claim to have told the truth in all things, even if they incriminated me, at least to have endeavored, in spite of the great extent of my field of activity, to contribute to the clarification of the true state of affairs to the best state of my knowledge, now, at the end of this trial, I want to present equally frankly the avowal and the confession I have to make today. In the course of the trial, my defense counsel submitted two fundamental questions to me. The first one, already some months ago. It was, in the case of victory, would you have refused to participate in any part of this success? I answered clearly, no, I should certainly have been proud of it. The second question posed to me was, how would you act if you were in the same position again? My answer still, that I would rather choose death than to let myself be drawn into the net of such pernicious methods. From these two answers, the High Tribunal may see my viewpoint. I believed, but I erred, and I was not in a position to prevent what should have been prevented. That is my guilt. It is tragic to have to realize that the best I had to give as a soldier, obedience and loyalty, was exploited for purposes which could not be recognized at the time, and that I did not see that there is a limit set for even a soldier's performance of his duty. This is my fate, though. From the clear recognition of the causes, the pernicious methods, and the terrible consequences of this war, may there arise the hope for a new future in the community of nations for the German people. End quote. The ranking SS man Ernst Kaltenbrunner was the next to deliver his final remarks to the tribunal judges. Quote, the prosecution holds me responsible for the concentration camps, for the destruction of Jewish life, for the Einsegruppen units, and other things. All of this is neither in accord with the evidence nor with the truth. The accusers, as well as the accused, are equally exposed to the dangers of legal proceedings. Yes, it is correct that I had to take over the Reich Security Main Office. There was no guilt in that in and of itself, for such offices exist in governments of other nations too. However, the task and activity assigned to me in 1943 consisted almost exclusively in the reorganization of the German political and military intelligence services, though not as Heydrich's direct successor. And on the Jewish question, I was just as much deceived as the other high officials. I never approved of, nor did I tolerate, the biological extermination of Jewry. The anti-Semitism found in the party and the state was still to be considered in a time of war as an emergency defense measure. The anti-semitism of Hitler, as we understand it today, was barbarism. If, however, I am asked, why did you remain even after you knew that your superiors were committing these crimes? I can only answer that I could not set myself up as their judge, and that indeed, not even this tribunal here will be in a position to ask for expatiation of these crimes. I only know that for my belief in Adolf Hitler, I put all my strength at the disposal of my people. And as a German soldier, I could only put myself at the service of the defense against those destructive forces which had once brought Germany close to the abyss, and which today, after the collapse of the Reich, are still threatening the world. If I have made mistakes in my work through a false conception of obedience, if I carried out orders, all of which, insofar as they were alleged to be cardinal orders, were issued before my time of office, then they are part of a fate which is stronger than myself, and which is carrying me along with it for i am accused here because substitutes are needed for the missing himmler and the other elements which are completely contrary to my point of view and whether or not my world view and explanation are accepted or rejected i ask you not to connect the fate and the honor of hundreds of thousands of the living and dead general ss of the waffen ss and of the civil servants who believing in their ideals bravely defended their right to the last minute. For much like myself, they believed that they were acting according to the law." Next was the somewhat dejected, but surprisingly upbeat party philosopher, Alfred Rosenberg. Quote, Besides repeating the old accusations, the prosecutors have raised new ones of the strongest kind. Thus, they claim that we all attended secret conferences in order to plan a war of aggression. Besides this, we are supposed to have ordered the alleged murder of 12 million people. All these accusations have been collectively described as genocide, the murder of peoples. In this connection, I have the following to declare in summarization. I know my conscience to be free, From any such guilt, from any complicity in the murders of peoples. Instead of working for the dissolution of the culture and the national sentiment of the Eastern European nations, I attempted to improve the physical and spiritual conditions of their existence. Instead of destroying their personal security and human dignity, I opposed it with all my might. The thought of a physical annihilation of Slavs and Jews, that is to say, the actual murder of entire peoples, has never entered my mind and I most certainly did not advocate it in any way. I was of the opinion that the existing Jewish question would have to be solved by the creation of a minority right, by emigration, or by settling the Jews in a national territory over a ten-year period of time. The White Paper of the British Government of July 24, 1946, shows how historical developments can bring about measures which were never previously planned. The practice of the German state leadership in the war, as proven here during the trial, differed completely from my ideas. To an ever-increasing degree, Adolf Hitler drew persons to himself who were not my comrades, but rather my opponents. With reference to their pernicious deeds I must state that they were not practicing the national socialism for which millions of believing men and women had fought, but rather shamefully misusing it. It was a degeneration which I, too, very strongly condemned. I frankly welcome the idea that a crime of genocide is to be outlawed by the international agreements and placed under the severest of penalties. With the natural provision that neither now nor in the future shall genocide be permitted in any way against the German people either. Honest service for this ideology, considering all human shortcomings, was not a conspiracy and my actions were never a crime. But I understood my struggle, just as the struggle of many thousands of my comrades, to be one conducted for the noblest ideas, the ideas which had been fought for under the flying banners for over a hundred years." I ask you to recognize this as my truth. Now, one of the most feared and anticipated moments of the trial was about to begin. For Julius Stryker rose up in the dock to make his final statement At the beginning of this trial, I was asked by the president whether I pleaded guilty in the matter of my indictment. I answered that question in the negative. The prosecution has asserted that mass killings would not have been possible without myself or my Der Sturmer newspaper, and the prosecution neither offered nor submitted any proof of this assertion. It has further been established that in many articles in my weekly paper, I advocated the Zionist demand for the creation of a Jewish state this would be the natural solution to the Jewish problem. These facts prove that I did not want the Jewish question to be solved by violence. If I mentioned the destruction or extermination of Jewry in some article of my weekly paper, then these were the strong statements made in reply to provoking expressions of opinion by Jewish authors, in which the extermination of German people was demanded. And according to his Final Testament, The mass killings ordered by the leader of state adolf hitler were meant to be a simple revenge it is deeply regrettable that the mass killings which can be traced back to the personal decisions of adolf hitler have led to a treatment of the german people which also must be considered as inhumane i repudiate the mass killings which were carried out in the same way as they are repudiated by every decent german your honors neither in my capacity as party functionary Nor as political author have I committed a crime of any sort. I therefore look forward to your judgment with a good and clean conscience. I have no request to make for myself. I have one for the German people from whom I come forth. Your honors, fate has given you the power to pronounce any judgment you see fit. Do not pronounce a judgment which would imprint the stamp of dishonor upon an entire nation. Unquote. Admiral Karl de Nitz was the next to present his final remarks, with all the dignity and self-respect that he had carried himself with to this point in the trial. Quote, Your Honours, may you judge the legality of German submarine warfare as your soul dictates. I consider this form of warfare justified and have acted according to my conscience. I would have to do exactly the same all over again. My subordinates, however, who carried out my orders, acted with complete confidence in me and without there being a shadow of a doubt about the necessity and legality of those same orders. In my eyes, no subsequent judgment can deprive them of their belief in their honourable character of a struggle for which they voluntarily made sacrifice after sacrifice right up until the final hour. there has been much talk here about a conspiracy which is alleged to have existed among the defendants. I consider this allegation a political dogma. As such, it cannot be proved, but can only be believed or rejected. The great success of the new government and a feeling of happiness such as the entire nation had never known before seem to prove it right. But if, in spite of all the idealism, all the decency, and all the devotion of the great majority of the German people, no other result has been achieved through the Fuhrer principle. In the last analysis, then the misfortune of the people, then this principle must be wrong. Wrong because apparently human nature is not in a position to use the power of this principle for good without falling victim to the temptations of power. Thirdly and lastly, my life was devoted to my profession and thereby to the service of the German people. As the last commander-in-chief of the German Navy, and as the last head of state, I bear the responsibility towards the German people, for everything which I have done, and more so, which I have left undone. Fellow Navyman, Eric Radar, was the next to present his closing testimonial. Quote, this trial, now that the evidence has been concluded, has had a beneficial result for the German nation, but an unexpected one for the prosecution. Unimpeachable testimony has cleared the German people, and with them all the persons in the same situation as myself, of the most serious charge. This is the charge that they had known of the killing of millions of Jews and other people even if they had not actually participated in it. And the evidence of the German Navy's cleanness and decency in battle were fundamentally confirmed. The German Navy stands before this court, and indeed before the world, with a clean shield and an unstained flag. But it is also my conviction that the British and American prosecution teams have rendered ill service to their own navies by morally defaming the opponent against whom the Allied naval forces waged hard and honorable war. I am convinced that the admiralities of the Allied powers, they understand me completely, and they know that they have not fought against a criminal. I have done my duty as a soldier because it was my conviction that this was the best way for me to serve the German people and my fatherland, the fatherland of whom I have lived for and for which I am prepared to die at any moment. If I have incurred guilt in any way, then this was chiefly in the sense that in spite of my purely military position. I should perhaps have not only been a soldier, but also up to a certain point, some sort of politician. But this would have been in contradiction to my entire career and the tradition of the German armed forces. But then this would have been a guilt, a moral guilt, towards the German people, and could never at any time brand me as a war criminal. It would not have been guilt before a human criminal court, but rather, the guilt before God." Next was the unshakable resolve of Chief of Operations, Alfred Jodl. With a slow and conscientious delivery, he made his final statement to the tribunal judges. It is my unshakable belief that later historians will arrive at a just and objective verdict concerning the higher military leaders and their assistants. For they, and the entire German army with them, were confronted with an insoluble task, to conduct a war which they had not wanted under a commander-in-chief whose confidence they did not possess and whom they themselves only trusted within limits with methods which were frequently in contradiction to their principles of leadership and their traditional proved opinions with troops and police forces which did not come under their full command and with an intelligence service which in part was working for the enemy and all this in the complete and clear realization that this war would decide the life or death of our beloved fatherland. They did not serve the powers of hell, and they did not serve a criminal, but rather their people and their fatherland. I believe that no man can do more than to try to reach the highest of the goals which appear attainable to him. That, and nothing else, has always been the guiding principle for my actions, and for that reason Gentlemen of the tribunal, no matter what verdict you may pass upon me, I shall leave this courtroom with my head held as high as when I entered it many months ago. But whoever calls me a traitor to the honourable tradition of the German army, or whoever asserts that I remained at my post for personal and egotistical reasons, him I shall call a traitor to the truth. In a war such as this, in which hundreds of thousands of women and children were annihilated by layers of bombs or killed by low-flying aircraft, and in which partisans used every single means of violence which seemed expedient, harsh measures, even though they may appear questionable from the standpoint of international law, are not a crime in morality or in conscience. For I believe in a vow that a man's duty toward his people and fatherland stands above every other, to carry out this duty was for me an honor and the highest law. May this duty be supplanted in some happier future by an even higher one, by the duty towards humanity. End quote. The next defendant to arise was architect Albert Speer. In spectacular contrast to his co-defendants, Speer went after a different angle when making his final remarks. It was an appeal to Western civilization and to the necessity of ridding the planet of extinction-level technologies. His appeal was not only to the morality of the Allied judges, but also of their intellectual prowess when discerning which direction the world would now be headed. Hitler and the collapse of his system have brought a time of tremendous suffering upon the German people. The useless continuation of this war, and the unnecessary destruction it wrought, make the work of reconstruction even more difficult. Privation and misery have come to the German people, and after this trial, the German people will despise and condemn Hitler as the proven author of its misfortune. But the world will learn from these happenings not only to hate dictatorship as a form of government, but also fear it. Hitler's dictatorship differed in one fundamental point from all its predecessors in history. His was the first dictatorship in the present period of modern technical development, a dictatorship which made complete use of all technical means in a perfect manner for the domination of its own nation. For through the technical devices such as the radio and the loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. It was thereby possible to subject them to the will of one man. The telephone, the teletype, and the radio made this possible. We had only reached the beginning of this development. The nightmare of many a man that one day nations could be dominated by technical means was all but realized in Hitler's totalitarian system. Today, the danger of being terrorized by technocracy, it threatens every country in the world. In modern dictatorships, This appears inevitable to me. Therefore, the more technical the world becomes, the more necessary is the promotion of individual freedom and the individual's awareness of himself as a counterbalance. Hitler's war ended with remote-controlled rockets, aircraft traveling at the speed of sound, new types of submarines, torpedoes which find their own target, with atom bombs and with the prospect of a horrible kind of chemical warfare. So as a former minister of a highly developed armament system, it is my last duty to say the following. A new large-scale war will end with the destruction of human culture and civilization. Nothing can prevent unconfined engineering and science from completing the work of destroying human beings, which it has begun in so dreadful a way in this war. Therefore this trial must contribute towards preventing such a degenerate war in the future and towards establishing rules whereby human beings can live together peacefully. Of what importance is my own fate after everything that has happened in comparison with this high-ended goal? For it is not the battles of war alone which shape the history of humanity, but also, in a higher sense, the cultural achievements which one day will become a common property to all of humanity. A nation which believes in its future will never perish. May God protect Germany and the culture of the West. Chief Justice Lawrence was now about to speak. The cases, the presentations, the witnesses, the defendants, the prosecution, the evidence, and the trial itself were now firmly locked into place and definitively unalterable. These were his final words uttered before a lengthy break The tribunal is now about to adjourn for the consideration of its judgement. Before doing so, the tribunal wishes to express its appreciation of the way in which counsel for the prosecution and the counsel for the defence have performed their duties to date. The tribunal have been informed that the defendants' counsel have been receiving letters from Germans improperly criticising their conduct as counsel in these proceedings. This tribunal will protect counsel insofar as it is necessary so long as the tribunal is in session. And it has no doubt that the control council will protect them thereafter against such attacks. In the opinion of the tribunal, defense counsel have performed an important public duty in accordance with the high traditions of the legal profession. And this tribunal thanks them for their assistance. This tribunal will now adjourn until September 30th, 1946, in order to properly consider its judgment." The following month was to be one of historic importance to the victims of the war, the defendants in the dock, the world-renowned lawyers trying the case, and to international law itself. While the tribunal judges made their deliberations, the families of the defendants were granted access to the Palace of Justice for proper visitation. Although von Papen and Keitel, they refused to see their loved ones, they argued that they should not be seen in such a pathetic state of disgrace, helplessness, and imprisonment. Additionally, the attempts to have Eric Radar's wife, Erika, transported to Nuremberg were blocked by the Soviets since she was in their captivity. He would not see her in the free world again until 1955 when Radar would be released from Spandau prison. Meanwhile, the eight judges of the tribunal, the four seated judges, and their alternates set forth upon a legal journey of secretive and possibly dangerous consequence. Worried about the possibility of reprisals or subversion, the panel were issued bulletproof vehicles and only a couple interpreters were allowed to be present during the deliberation period. All communications were severed from their conference chambers and all impromptu writings and notes were rounded up and burnt after each session. The first order of business for the tribunal was to decide on the rules for what would necessitate a conviction. After much Russian protestation, it was decided that any split vote on a verdict would result in an immediate acquittal. This was in spite of any overarching evidence that might suggest otherwise. This wasn't going to be a simple ring them up type trial. They would actually have to form consensus around the verdicts and how to sentence each man properly. For they had all held a credible veto card in their hands and the all-encompassing interest of making these men face justice was the undergirding of the entire process. After the agreement on verdicts and sentencing, the next issue at hand was count one of the indictments. Conspiracy to commit counts two, three, and four. The French delegation were the only ones present that argued for dropping the count or automatically acquitting all the defendants of this charge. They argued that because conspiracy was not clearly defined within the context of international law, that it was being applied after the fact. And that in light of the overwhelming evidence against the accused, it would be unnecessary overkill to pursue this charge. Alternate Judge Burkett of the British delegation made the most forceful rebuttal to this stance when saying that, quote, if you say that this dreadful war wasn't planned, you bring about a national disaster. You're acquitting the Nazis. Do you want to acquit this regime, sir? Unquote. It was eventually agreed that count one would only be applied to those that were additionally charged with count two. Not all the judges were in agreement that all the organizations and their personnel were in a common conspiracy to commit crimes against peace or crimes against humanity. So they compromised on upholding the charge against military planners, specifically since those were intentional in nature and brought about the express potential for the crimes in charges three and four. They additionally agreed that the date for the commencement of the conspiracy charge was to be the Hochbach Conference of 1937 they chose this date because it was the earliest documented evidence of Hitler outlining expansionist plans with his military cabinet. It is here they detailed their proposed actions against Austria and Czechoslovakia, while high command clearly staked out the resources, manpower, and materials they would need to launch a successful war. All rhetorical and oral evidence aside, They would stick only to the hard facts that had been presented at the trial, and only after 1937, for the conspiracy charge. Another charged and contentious issue was that of the organizational charges. Prosecutor Biddle expressed his understanding that there was a great deal of evidence against individuals within the Nazi organizations. But overall, he couldn't see that the group guilt had been adequately demonstrated. Burkett then asked aloud what the world would think if they had gave the SS or the Gestapo a free pass with their verdicts. Biddle then manufactured a satisfactory compromise to the objections. He intended to go on the assumption that in order for any Nazi association to be declared criminal it must have been quote been formed or used in connection with the commission of crimes outlined by the Nuremberg Charter end quote. This understanding led to the right cabinet and high command having all charges dropped since they had sufficient evidence to convict all those remaining as individual defendants. They additionally dropped verdicts against the SA, as they were seen to be a loose-knit coalition of troops, old-timers, and political security, and nothing befitting of the crimes outlined by the Tribunal Charter. The judges also agreed that a guilty verdict handed down to a Nazi organization did not necessarily entail the imprisonment and execution of all involved. They spared people who, quote, had no knowledge of its criminal purposes and those who were drafted by the state for membership, end quote. Meaning that, for example, SS mechanics, secretaries, and janitors were never going to be implicated in war crimes or crimes against humanity. These caveats, they undermined the original intent of the tribunal, as was originally convened, that the whole of the Third Reich was on trial as a massive criminal endeavor to engage in aggressive warfare. And although this deviated from the original plan of the trial, it also revealed the underlying benevolence of its conduct. For if they wanted legally justified revenge and show trial executions, they easily could have convicted nearly everyone involved, without weighing the evidence, the defense cases, or even hearing testimonies in court. With all these parameters established and agreed upon by the delegations, they began to go through each defendant's file individually and agree upon their decisions. The trial reconvened after a month of deliberations on September 30th, 1946. The courthouse was packed solid with news agencies from across the world and they were all present to hear the judgments against the twenty-one men in the dock. And after a protracted and often painful summary of mind-numbing legalese and document recitation, the moment of truth was finally at hand. The courtroom was both thrilled and anxious about what was to come next. Would the Allied Tribunal find all the men guilty? Was this a sham trial made explicitly for the purpose of doling out Victor's justice? Would the men be sentenced to death? And could the verdicts themselves reignite a Nazi movement in Germany? It seemed that the weight of the world was now on the tribunal's shoulders. The court was brought to order and each of the four primary judges read aloud and explained their legal findings on the cases presented. The defendants in the dock were mostly hunched over and intently analyzing each syllable heard for some small hint of what their fate was to be the overarching theme from the judges was that this was most definitely not a case of arbitrarily applied justice. Rather, these verdicts were going to be quote, The expression of international law existing at the time of its creation and that the tribunal itself was a contribution to this very same international law. Unquote. Justice Biddle tackled the idea of retroactively applying law where it may not have existed when he stated that, quote, To assert that this is unjust to punish those who in defiance of treaties have attacked their neighboring states without warning is obviously untrue, for in such circumstances, the attacker must know that he is doing wrong, and so far from it being unjust to punish him, it would be unjust if his wrongs were allowed to go unpunished." It was then announced by the tribunal that they considered every attack on a neutral country from 1939 to 1941 be of a criminal nature and that such a reality would be reflected in their judgments. Goering, Radar, Keitel, Inquart and Ribbentrop were visibly upset by this revelation. Additionally, it was stated that charges three and four would only be judged after the year of 1939, once the war had already begun. This meant that they would not hold the Nazis accountable for what happened in the six previous years of Hitler's rule. Before the tribunal announced the verdicts on the individual defendants, they first released their judgments on the organizations. They found the leadership corps guilty of ordering and facilitating the slave labor program, the oppression of the Jews across the continent and the crimes against POWs. The Gestapo and SD were also declared criminally guilty for being involved in human rights abuses, torture, executions, and illegal detentions. But all low-level actors within these groups were exonerated from any pending punishments and exempt from subsequent war crimes trials. But the SS, they were unanimously condemned and found guilty of the worst crimes perpetrated throughout the war though this was not especially surprising to anyone who followed the trial. Rather, it was a confirmation of the truth. They were in charge of the death camps, the mass executions, the disposal of corpses, and the plundering of occupied territories. Though they did signify that members of the Waffen SS, who were conscripted into service against their will, were necessarily exempt. Again, barring some extreme circumstances of overt criminality. And finally, they announced that the SA, the Reich Cabinet, and High Command would all be found not guilty of criminal activity. This was because they couldn't find instances of the SA being involved in almost any of the tribunal charges, and that they played an almost entirely domestic role throughout the war. If the German government chose to do so, they would be free to pursue the individuals in this group. On the High Command front, they were not found to be a fixed and secretive group that would legally constitute as an organization per se. For these men, the highest ranking in the Reich, they would be tried individually as much as been done during the previous 11 months. And there still were more to be tried in the following years. Justice Lawrence stated that these men in the dock were, quote, responsible in large measure for the miseries and the suffering that have fallen onto millions of men, women, and children. They have been a disgrace to the honorable profession of arms. Without their military guidance, the aggressive ambitions of Hitler and his fellow Nazis would have been academic and sterile. Although they were not a group falling within the words of the Charter, they were certainly a ruthless military caste. The contemporary German militarism, Flourish briefly with its recent ally, National Socialism, as well as or better than it had in the generations of the past. Additionally, many of these men have made a mockery of the soldiers' oath of obedience to military orders, and, where the facts warrant it, these men should be brought to trial so that those among them who are guilty of these crimes should not escape their punishments. End quote. And with that, the day was concluded. Many in the German media, as well as several of the defendants, were very happy with the idea that the entirety of the German people would not be condemned and vilified for the war. Not to mention the crimes against humanity and the Holocaust, as blackening every single German individual in the Reich. Many in the Dock would concede their guilt on certain issues and disagree with each other on many others. But the one thing they unanimously agreed upon was that the average German citizen be separated from their ranks. They thought German citizens should not be held accountable for the result they wrought upon the entire continent. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.